Hail, fellow Draycott listeners. Welcome back. Well, I'm on the move with Jackie Dog. I'm walking now from my home to a rather lovely house in Draycott to meet Dr. Richard Dingley and his daughter, Hannah Davis. Now, I am not on with the facts yet, but something happened back, I think it was around early June, June the 6th, and there was talk in the village, great excitement, about aircraft above the Memorial Hall and parachutists. I think quite a lot of people turned up on the Memorial Ground as well. I know no more than that, but I do know that it had something to do with Dr. Richard Dingley, possibly an anniversary or a birthday, I don't know. So that's what I'm just going to find out now. So I'm just approaching the house. Now, this is where it's tricky because you're given a house name and obviously I have very little sight. <laughs> Jackie, do you know where we're going? No, you see, there's this belief guide dogs have an inbuilt satellite. They do not. Anyway, oh, I think I somebody's coming to the door. Is that you, Hannah? Hi, Hannah. Yeah, yeah. Hi there. Yes, yeah, I'm Tiggy. Hello. Yeah, this is Jackie, my guide dog. Thank you. Uh, we'll just uh, de-rig, just take a harness off and then we'll be in with you in a second. Well, today, Draycott Diaries finds me in a very sumptuous, rather lovely living room. (laughs) Um, I think we like the word sumptuous. And I'm sitting opposite the very fine and very lovely Dr. Edward Richard Dingley, and I'm going to give him his his letters after his name as well. He's O-B-E-K-S-T-J-K-M-N. ASDK, which is quite a title. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to call you Dr. Dingley. (laughs) (laughs) Most Uh, people forget the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think because formality forbids that I'm the presenter, so I must be courteous. And and you've been very kind, Dr. Dingley, welcoming us into your lovely home. And sitting uh, next to you, we have Hannah Davis. Hannah, hello. Now, Hannah, you're Dr. Dingley's daughter. I am indeed. <laughs> and the two of you together, we're going to we're going to unpick a really unusual life story. And I'm just fascinated. And we've done a little bit of research, which forgive me, I'm sure there will be bits that's wrong. But let's see how we get on. Those in the village will remember there was gossip and talk and excitement in the village back in June because there was a bit of a commotion on the memorial ground outside the Draycott Village Hall where a large group of people suddenly amassed and from the sky parachutists arrived. And to this day, there are lots of people in the village who've heard about it and don't know what was going on. So we shall keep that till the end um, as the surprise. But can I just give a little teaser here that it has quite a lot to do with Dr. Dingley and indeed Hannah, who I'm speaking to today. So if I may, I know most of your life you have spent abroad, Dr. Dingley, but how many years approximately have you been in Draycott now? I think about 25. So a good long time. Yes, I came back from Malaysia and moved here because Sylvia's mother lived here and she'd lost her husband about a year or so before so we felt we needed to be near her. We have a connection, Dr Dingley, in the way that I am certified blind and we're going to talk a little bit later about your work with the blind 
and also your work as a doctor. So first of all, let's just take us back to your childhood, because if memory serves from the, the research I've done, your early life was in the industrial Midlands, is that right, Uppingham? Uppingham was school. We lived in Wensbury, which is right in the black country. My father was a doctor there, and my grandfather was a doctor there. And they were strong Methodists, is that correct? Yes, definitely. And your faith and your duty and your fantastic career to medicine has been very much carried through the family, hasn't it? Yes, very much so. I read a lovely quote that you were saying that you wanted to be a doctor because you believed everybody was equal and everybody needed to be treated as equal. Yes, I think that was so when I was quite young. So let's go back now to when you were training as a doctor. Where did you qualify? Which, which hospital did you train at? College Hospital London. And I spent a year on house jobs there afterwards before moving to Sutton and Cheam. And this was around 19... Was this in the 1950s? Yes, it would be. So um, mid-50s, you uh, you qualified as a doctor. But before you then headed off, I know you did uh, with National Service, but before you headed off, you became interested in eyes. And did you become an ophthalmologist at that time as well as... I suppose I did, but I wasn't really a qualified ophthalmologist. I was a, a freelance, as it were, because I hadn't done any official training. But I joined the Air Force... And because the boss at King's was also the principal on the RAF, he arranged for me to be in the eye department of the RAF. So I was with them for three years. So this was at the time of national service, am I right? Okay. And they sent you off to Singapore? I went to Singapore after about four months in London. Just before we leave King's College Hospital, your wife-to-be, Sylvia, she was also training as a radiographer, is that correct? Yes, that's right. So was there a sense of a romance at that stage, or were you just friends? Not at all, just friends. And she, I believe, had gone to Singapore ahead of you, hadn't she? I mean, just by chance. She always said that I chased her there, but... Wasn't true. We'll ask Hannah about that in a minute, since she's a result of this liaison. So you were then in Singapore, and this is really exciting. This is the bit that floats my boat, particularly because I've done a lot of survival programs in my telly career, particularly with with bear grills and parachuting. Now you were a parachuting doctor, is that correct? Yes, did that in Singapore. And they were dropping you into the Malaysian jungle? Well, that was what we were trained to do. I didn't actually have to do it in anger. Fortunately, nobody was sufficiently ill to need being dropped up. But uh, we were trained to jump in and then clear the jungle in order for a helicopter to come in and take us out. And this was to support downed American aircraft, is that correct? Any aircraft, particularly small British aircraft that were patrolling the the jungles. 
also, I believe, on the ground there were the special forces there as well that there you were special supporting. forces there, yes. So what was the training like for that? Because I'm assuming as a doctor dropping into the jungle, you must have had quite a lot of kit with you. We had a lot of kit. You trod on the kit. So that the kit went through the trees before you did. I'm assuming you, you eventually landed on the ground, not in the canopy. Well, it depends. Sometimes you're stuck in the canopy. But um, sometimes you meant to land on the ground. <laughs> that was the idea. One word comes to mind. Was that frightening? I suppose it was in a way. It was exciting. It was sort of <laughs> frightening. Yes, I think it was exciting. <laughs> you I never think... knew what was going to happen, <laughs> where you were going to land and how you were going to land. And I know that um, landing in the canopy, because we did this as a, as again, as a, as a Bear Grylls setup actually. But I think they did it in the in World War One, particularly and World War Two. I think uh, canopy landings by parachute were notoriously dangerous. So that must have been quite scary for you to get yourself out of that situation if when you were training well, to were land in the canopy. Treading on the on, on the luggage, the pack, the pack. You actually trod on it and pushed down on it. So it is that that went through the trees, not you. I think you're being very modest. It it (laughs) sounds... But you never actually had to face enemy fire on the ground. Oh, no. No, we weren't involved with the enemy at all. So your story moves on. You come back to London and you demob. Yep. Now, you and Sylvia because there's a little romance in here as well. Where did you finally decide that you would become an item? Towards the end of time in Singapore. Ah, okay. She had gone to Singapore ahead of you. I mean, I know this wasn't part of the plan, but by fate, by chance, you then were out there with the RAF. And somewhere a romance must have started... So can you tell us a little bit about that, how, how you basically fell in love with Sylvia? I don't know how I fell in love with Sylvia or why. Sylvia and another girl wanted to travel, but didn't feel it was wise to travel unaccompanied. So they hijacked me into going with them as a sort of escort, which was rather amusing. And quite, quite interesting, actually, the tour around. And I imagine when you're travelling with somebody, you really get to know somebody. So is that when you really started to get to know Sylvia properly? I suppose it probably was. I hadn't thought about it much. She was leaving, and she was wondering about signing up for another tour. And that's when I somehow sprung the bomb about it possibly marrying her. And um, she agreed, amazingly. So where did you marry eventually? London. Uh, When you came back to DMOB? Yes. Okay, so the next part of your journey, you're with Sylvia at this point, and you are sent to Jerusalem. Yes, we went to Jerusalem with St John Ambulance, who were around an eye hospital in Jerusalem. That was quite a big hospital. 
very busy hospital. About 150 to 200 patients every day. Was that your first meeting with St John's? Yes, it was. And I, I thought it would be my last, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, as the story unfolds, that's clearly not the case. No, not the case. <laughs> now, in this hospital, were you working with totally non-sighted people, blind people, and were you, or, or were they people, well, we very after people with sight who needed medical care for their sight? So a lot of them were infections and other things in the eye which made it difficult to look after, really, when they're living in the awkward places. But we would give them um, treatment until they were more or less better, and then send them out with a prescription to go and buy some more from the shops in Jerusalem. Were you carrying out operations out there as well? Oh yes, lots okay. of operations, about 10 a day. What was the main category of operation you were doing? We are doing a lot of cataract, some glaucoma, and a lot of, for the ingrowing eyelids. And that's quite common, isn't it, in very hot countries? I remember very, this from very Africa. Very common, um, very common. So you and Sylvia were married at this stage. Had any children come along by that stage? While we were in Jerusalem, we had one child. That was your oldest daughter? Yeah. Now, I know the calling of Borneo, which is the great love of this story, and I know the love of your life and your family's life. We went there from Jerusalem. Hannah, where were you, were you born at this stage, or were you born in Borneo? No, I, I was born in Borneo. Oh, you were? Okay. About, I suppose, a year and a half after they were there. We're now making the transition to to North Borneo, and you, again, we come across the St John's again here, don't we? Regretfully, yes. But this is a, a really wonderful, wonderful part of your life. You, So you and your very young family, as far as I can see, set up, and you were presumably one of the very few doctors there, Tell us a bit about the living conditions and, and your house that you lived in with your with your young family. We lived in a big wooden house, which is now burnt down. That was burnt down before we visited last time. But it was huge, really, because they built them that way in order to be cool. When you were there with this wonderful timbered house, which I've been lucky enough to see a photograph you had no windows, did you? You had no glass windows. It was just open to the elements. It was shutters and, shutters. and screens, yeah. Mosquito screens. So it was fairly raw living. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> to me, it was quite normal. But um, no, I mean, it was a, a beautiful, big, old, wooden, colonial house. <laughs> But, but around you were the kind of general sort of stuff. I mean, I, I, knowing a little bit about Bonnie, you know, you've got some quite tricky infestations of the odd snake turning up in your garden. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The odd snake in the roof. Monkeys and... <laughs> Monkeys and... Yes. Scorpions. And... <laughs> so where were you 
born, Hannah, because you were born out there. So. In the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is where Dad had his sort of main office, or I don't know what you call it, surgery. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but you were sent to school, weren't you, in this country? We were country? sent off to boarding school. Mum homeschooled us with a PNEU system for up until all of us till we were about eight or nine, and then we were sent off to boarding school in England. Go back at least two or three times a year. So you've lived quite a nomadic life. You know, we talk about a culture shock going from this country to another country, particularly the Far East. You had it the other way round because you must have lived a very lovely, free, young existence without any kind of real parameters. And then you were sent to quite a kind of Severe is not the right word. We won't name the school, but but it's a school. It's a boarding school, not yeah. far from here, is yeah. it? But did you find that seriously? Did you find that difficult coming from that sort of lifestyle? I found it very difficult. I think by the time I was a sort of went on to, I went to prep school first, and that was really difficult. But my elder sister was already there, so that made it easier because I certainly didn't want to be in England for any reason at all, and particularly not school. But by the time I went on to a school near here, it I was 11, I guess. So, I don't know, I, I suppose I got, you know, you're more used to it. And everybody at home, we're all in the same boat. So we used to all meet on the plane, literally, at Heathrow. Everyone would meet up and you all fly home together and then you all fly back to your various boarding schools. I think also we just didn't um, appreciate the amazing life that we had at the time, because we did feel a bit like the odd ones out living, you know, in Borneo, compared to what everyone else was doing in their holidays. But now, of course, I realise how lucky we were. When you say the odd one out? Well, I think, well, having your parents so far away was one thing, but also just, as you say, being very free and open. But for us, you know, we're off into the jungles or climbing mountains, you know, mm. on the beach, growing up on the beach, water skiing, all these sort of things, jungle pools and rivers, whereas everyone else is doing um, other things, you know, I don't know <laughs> what they did on their holidays here. <laughs> Not as exciting as that, I can assure you. But and also you, you, had your, you had your own doctor living with you, didn't you? And you did tell me at times when you had to have vaccinations, your father would chase you around the garden. Oh, literally, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, we didn't really go to anyone else. It was him. <laughs> well, he's probably the best one at that time. But I'd love to just talk about something that came up actually quite recently, Anna, when we had a pre-chat. There is Mount Kinabalu, which is very high. You were part of a group that took totally blind people up this mountain yes. back in the, where are we now, in the early 60s. So how did that go? Well, it went very well. <laughs> I think it went superbly, simply. A lot of people were a bit surprised about that, the idea. But the people we had trouble with was the excited people, not the blind. <laughs> the blind could walk all right there all day because they'd been trained. But the, the excited people... They got out of breath and into problems. <laughs> so, really, it was rather amusing. And you made it to the top, didn't you? Well, no, I didn't at that time. I stopped at 35,000 feet. But the blind group did, didn't they? The blind they? group went to the top. 
but Sylvia and I stayed at base camp preparing meals and things wow. when they came back. Fantastic. I just love that. I love the fact that the sighted people were holding the blind people back. Yeah, I want to make a point about that to everybody, <laughs> that we will always be ahead of the pack. Uh, there's there's a lovely story I, I read, and uh, well, one is slightly not so lovely, but there was a... The, there was an orangutan that you became quite close to, Dr. Dingley, and resulted in, I believe, an operation. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, he was an idiot <laughs> who um, made his enjoyment in chasing other orangutans around and generally getting in the way. And one day he climbed up a tree, which happened to be an electric pole, and... <laughs> got electrocuted at the top and fell down with a big bump and landed with cataracts. <laughs> so um, he was blind and being teased enorm enormously by his previous victims, victims of the blind. <laughs> and um, I saw him and I agreed to operate. We operated on him, took his cataracts out, uh, which was quite fun, and then uh, put him in a box so that his hands couldn't reach size for a week or two. And then we um, let him loose again. Good as new. He was yes. back to full fitness. Can I just ask you, doing a, a cataract operation, having known a little bit about this, is it is it different on an on animal? No. It's exactly the same principle. Um, and, and the bit that I was going to say that was was less fun was for your mother, Hannah, because she got she got bitten, she got bitten by an orangutan. What what happened there? Well, there was one uh, particular orangutan who had very much against women. <laughs> Jane. Jane. Yeah. Yes, she had nothing to do with women, and Mum thought that the particular orangutan was about to attack one of us, so she stood in the way and. Um, got um, her hand held, well, bitten by the, the the orangutan, and they have a real hard grip, so it took like three or four of the rangers trying to pull her, pry her hand out of the grip of the mouth. Yeah, it's quite... It's quite nasty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you stitched her up, I assume. <laughs> I, I suppose know. I can't remember. I can't remember that bit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's rabies. I mean, you've got all... I mean, obviously, those who, who don't know, the orangutan is um, native to North Borneo. Um, uh, were there a lot of these hanging around? I mean, you seem to give them names, oh, yeah. like no, well, their family pets. Well, these ones were in a reserve um, because there's a lot of... With, with all the logging and things, there's a lot of orphaned ones, and so they have all these reserves. But yeah, they are around for sure. I mean, orang utan is tran literally translated from Malay, man of the jungle, orang being man, utan being jungle. Mm -hmm. So orang utan is man of the jungle. I never knew that. That's, that's lovely. That's really nice. Now, meanwhile, with your eye doctor hat on and also your general doctor hat, I know you were doing surgeries um, across... North Borneo. So you were adapting a lot of your vehicles, weren't you, as sort of temporary surgeries, temporary ambulances. And Hannah, didn't he drag you somewhere once when you were 10 weeks old in one of these vehicles? 10 days old. Oh, 10 days old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, to deliver a Land Rover 
um, a long wheelbase Land Rover that had been given to become an ambulance up in Ranau, I think, which yes, is it was up halfway up Mount Kinabalu. And nobody else would drive it up there because the roads were not built for that size vehicle. So nobody would do it. They said it was very unsafe. And so my parents opted to, or volunteered to do it with a a little sort of three-year-old and a (laughs) ten-day-old and deliver this Land Rover up there. And did you succeed? Oh, yes. (laughs) Nowadays, no it's like a highway up there, but in those days, it was a, a track. And Sylvia was all right about that, was she, your wife? Yes. Oh, yeah, no, it's probably her idea. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. This, you know, this is just a, such a picture of freedom and, and just, you know, all those health and safety things sort of aside. Oh, it just sounds great. That didn't exist. No. Yeah. And, and Annie, you must have, uh, what, you, you both most speak Malay, Malay. is that correct? Well, a bit, yeah. Do you <laughs> speak Malay, now. Dr Lindley? Not as much as I should. I think we all spoke a lot more than they did. Yeah, I mean, I know your, your brother's friend, isn't it? I was writing in English and speaking to the patients in all sorts of languages. There's lots uh, of different dialects, too. The, all the different dialects. So I knew a bit of a lot of dialects rather than a lot of one dialect. And I'm assuming because you were going out in some quite raw areas, weren't you, where you were taking medical care out to some quite distant places. Oh, yes. That adaption of of different languages must have at times been quite challenging. I suppose it was, yes. But you always had a nurse or somebody with you. I always had a male nurse, usually. And I guess it took you away from home quite a lot, didn't it? You were away. I was away about two days a week. Mm But whenever possible, he'd take us with him. <laughs> that's just, yes. yes, it's great. It's just, you know, that's the wonderful way of learning about life. That really is the university of life. Yeah. I think we have to, to drag you back to, to today in Draycott. Oh dear. Yes, sorry about that. I <laughs> know, uh, I just, you know, I want to stay in that Borneo feel. It just sounded just so perfect. And of course, we could talk all day. But June the 6th, is a notable date. Was it actually your 90th birthday? Yes. And what happened on that day? Can you tell me? Not really. <laughs> I think you do know. I know that I was had a party here and that I was dragged off to have a ride in the Jeep as something special and was taken to the... What they call it? The Recreation Hall? Yes, yeah. Memor- yeah. in front of the Memorial Hall, yeah. yeah. Yes. And um, there... Five men jumped out of a plane <laughs> and brought me to a birthday, birthday present. present. Yeah. <laughs> now, your your son had organised this, hadn't he? He yes. couldn't come over, could he, because of COVID? No, he was stuck in, in Sudan. Sudan, that's right. So you were picked up in a, an American World War II jeep. Yeah. And you then were taken to the memorial ground yes and uh, and and how many parachutists were there five wow and what was the gift just the just the cards and who were the cards from from them and from john well uh, there is quite um there's a little caveat to this which is that a friend who's asked not to be named <laughs> <laughs> was 
out there on the memorial ground doing her morning exercise class. She was doing her aerobics class and her best lycra was in the wash. So she just bunged on any old kind of T-shirt she could find, thinking that she wasn't (laughs) going to be seen by anybody. So what would it matter? She was halfway through her star jumps uh, when uh, all these people suddenly <laughs> drove up onto the ground, and then raining turned, men. and then exactly <laughs> started raining men. You know, so you you couldn't rise. But that must have been a very special day for you. It was special. Well, all I can say is thank you so much for welcoming us to your home. I wanted just to ask you one last question: Why do they call you Opa? It's German for grandpa, and my mother was German. Okay, and I think we need to make it clear that you've been awarded an OBE for your work to charities, and you are a Knight of St. John. Yes, I am. That's fantastic accolade. (laughs) Hannah Davis, Dr. Richard Dingley, with all the letters after your name, thank you both for making us feel so welcome today and being contributors on Draycott Diaries. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's been fun. How I shall always remember my poor friend in Lycra as she looked to the skies and saw five parachutists coming down outside the uh, memorial hall. You couldn't write it, could you? Anyway, thank you so much to Dr. Richard Dingley and his daughter, Hannah Davis, for telling us all about their life stories. What an extraordinary time they had in Borneo. Wonderful. Another person I'd like to thank is Jeff Farney, who recorded and edited this programme, to my brother Hugh for arranging the theme music. I was The Voice, my name is Tiggy, and we shall look forward to seeing you all again in a month's time. Stay safe. (laughs) 